morning. If you pay attention, you'll know that that slide is from last week, or you would think we are repeating. Some themes are repeating. Uh, welcome to the Father's Day brunch. Glad you all could make it. My, my wife asked me yesterday, she said, are they doing a Father's Day brunch? And I thought, you know I'm preaching tomorrow, right? Like, we'll feast on the word. I texted my family. We did a little Father's Day family thing. It's a, just a chat, and we were saying Father's Day, to clarify that. Um, and I said, Happy Father's Day. I'm preaching on Jacob and Esau this morning. I don't know. It's just a... It's, it's not like... It's a very strange passage for Father's Day. It's actually perfect and sad at the same time. Uh, okay. Page 23 in your pew Bible, we're looking at the second half of Genesis chapter 25. Second half of Genesis 25, starting in verse 19. 25, 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. The Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we, as we celebrate fatherhood today, as we celebrate 
fathers and father figures in our life, we come to you, our heavenly Father. And Lord, we're asking that you would uh, help us to pay attention to this text. Help us to see the truths that you have put together, that you have knit this story together uh, in your redemptive purposes. Lord, help us to have eyes to see. Help us to have hearts that believe. Help us to have minds that can comprehend the truths uh, of which are within this. And we know that that only comes by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we ask that he would do his work this morning in each of us. For we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, In 1871, France and Germany uh, signed the Frankfurt Treaty which ensured that France would pay back uh, to Germany for the losses that were suffered during the Franco-Prussian War. The French gave up uh, Alsace-Lorraine, so they gave up land, they gave up finances, and, and really the French were furious over this situation. And these were the seeds leading to what would eventually be World War I. Sometimes conflict comes uh, before you can see it, and you can tell that it will be difficult and trying circumstances ahead, and that's our situation here in the second half of Genesis chapter 25, where we have two at war and at odds even before their birth. That combined with Certain circumstances lead to warlike behavior, warlike separation, much like Europe in the early 1900s. We see this in the, in the fighting in the womb between Jacob and Esau in verse 22. It escalates with parental favoritism, as we see in verse 28. And then we see its climax in the sale of the birthright in verses 29 through 34. So what are we to make of all of this section of God's holy word? And there's four points for us this morning. And the first point is that typical diffi- the typical difficulties of God's people, the typical difficulties of God's people, verses 19 through 21. Rebecca is barren, and it feels like we are watching a rerun. You keep flipping back and forth in your Bible, making sure you didn't lose your place. Am I reading the same story that I just read? Didn't we just do this with Sarah? Will this take 10 chapters to resolve? (laughs) And if you don't know the story, you're all panicked because you know that that means we have six more years of Genesis. (laughs) Well, what happens with the covenant family? What, what, what happens with them here? Well, there's no repeating good news. There's no repeating of the Hagar method. Uh, thank you, Lord. In verse 21, Isaac prays to God over their situation. He knows the promises to his father and to the seed. He knows that there has to be resolution here. And Yahweh responds, and though there is resolution in about one verse, if you do the math, they were married when he was 40, she gave birth when he was 60, you can see that it took 20 years. So again, we're seeing the 
seemingly slow outworking of God with his covenant people. Now, it doesn't say explicitly in this passage, but if you remember from last week, Ishmael has 12 sons. The non-covenant side of the family is being fruitful and multiplying. But the covenant people, it seems, are not. But you know what their situation is doing. It's driving them to their knees in prayer, trusting in the promises of God, trusting in the promises of Yahweh, that this is very much the reality of the people of God, is it not? Often seen as weak, perhaps ineffectual. It seems like whenever there are Christian lobby, powerful Christian lobby groups uh, at play in the government, that, that... Not a lot of good always comes from that. They end up doing more harm than good. Author James Humes asks his readers to imagine uh, interviewing a job applicant. And this young man comes and he's sitting in front of you. And not only does he have a stutter, but he also has a lisp. And you look at his resume and you see that he has no college degree. In fact, he's never even attended college. And then you hear from an associate that this fellow once, he he fainted in his very first public appearance in front of others. Now, if you were to turn this young man down, you would have just turned down Winston Churchill. But you see, things can look bleak. And the writer here in Genesis is pointing out that the people of God in this world often seem like that especially in comparison with those who are outside. Weak, fragile, uh, apparently fruitless and of, of little account, an unimpressive group. That is still often the case in many ways for Christ church today. In fact, the Belgic Confession captures the hope and the realism in the 27th article when it says... This church is preserved or supported by God against the rage of the whole world. Though she sometimes for a while appears very small and in the eyes of men to be reduced to nothing, as though during the perilous reign of Ahab, the Lord reserved unto him 7,000 men who had not bowed their knee to Baal. Very small, and in the eyes of man to be reduced to nothing. God so frequently begins his work to put his work on display at points like this. Now, certainly, statistics are on the side of a weakened church in the West. But is that such a bad thing that God could be preparing for something? unbelievable, something that only he can do, whether it's in the east or whether it's here, wherever the spirit goes. Genesis 25, 19 through 21 opens with the typical difficulties of God's people. Second, we find surprising sovereignty, surprising sovereignty, verses 22 and 23. In these verses, we see that Rebecca, after 20 years of trying to conceive, finally falls pregnant. But it's a difficult one. 
She feels like there are two nations warring inside of her, which is, in fact, what she has. Many of you know that Lindsay and I are expecting our third child in October, and when we went to the sonographer just recently, and the first question that Lindsay asked was, there's just one, right? Uh, for fear that there might be two warring nations inside of her. <laughs> so Rebecca's womb is essentially a war zone. What does she do? She goes and asks the Lord why her pregnancy is so difficult. And the Lord answers her, not in a way that you would expect. It's a surprising response. And the twist comes at the climactic end of that section. It's a reversal of what is expected. Yahweh tends to be unconventional. He tells her that the two will be divided, but that the older will serve the younger. That goes against the, the tradition of primogeniture, right? That the oldest takes control of the family, that the oldest takes uh, uh, the, the uh, resources of the family and provides for, for the younger and for the children, that's a human tradition. That's, that's a cultural expectation, but it's not a divine mandate. And God tells Rebecca, in fact, the opposite is what will happen here. And it reminds us, of course, of Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 12. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac... Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. There's something interesting here. Think back to the provision of Isaac, the, the, the promise went through him. Why? Because of Sarah? What about Ishmael? It could be easy to say, well, well, Ishmael was not chosen because of who his mother was. It was Hagar. It was the, the, their plans, their own scheming. That, that wasn't necessarily the reason. Isaac was chosen because that is who God chose. But now the case comes where the children come from the same mother. One will carry on the covenant and the other will not. And so there's no more, well, they're from different families. You know, they're, 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 there's a diverging path here. God sets his electing love on one and not the other. The other hardens his heart, as we will look at in a minute. This is the sovereign decision of God. There is no other explanation according to Romans chapter 9. Jeremy Izell and I were just talking about this last week. And he said he was visiting a church with his family and, and the preacher was preaching on this exact text. And he said, God looked through time and he saw the future of 
Jacob and Esau. And he chose Jacob seeing the fruit that he would bear. Sorry, mate. Are we literally not interpreting scripture with scripture? Jeremy said he sat there saying, what about Romans 9? How can you just leave that off the table? This man was using divine foreknowledge as his explanation, probably because he's hesitant with predestination. And I understand that because predestination has been abused in the church for a lot of years. Well, then Jeremy and I spent the next several moments laughing out loud at the thought of God choosing us because of us. God clearly knew that, J- that Jeremy would be a fantastic musician and a very gifted singer. And he said, I need that fella on my team. And God clearly knew that I would be a very mediocre preacher. And he said, I'm taking names. And he said, this one could go either way. So I'll take a gamble. Things worked out with his father. I'm glad you're laughing because (laughs) what a ridiculous thought. It's ridiculous. Does God have foreknowledge? Yes. Is that the measure for who he chooses to save? No. Apart from God's saving election of me, I am a wretch deserving of destruction and hell, and I know my own heart, and I know my own tendencies and proclivities, but because of God's rich mercy... He has set me apart in the righteousness of his son before I had done anything good or bad. Not based on what I had done or would do, but because of God's sovereign choice. Often my question of the Lord is not, why do you save some and not others? That's not for me to know. Rather, it is, why did you save me? This choosing of Jacob and Esau is an example of sovereignty against the stream. Against the way that man normally does things. The way that man operates. Even in those unconventional patterns of God that God uses, it brings us hope. Because none of us would probably have been chosen according to man's standards. Whoever laughed at me being mediocre, as case in point. (laughs) Just kidding. But Paul says as much to the church in Corinth, does he not? When he tells them to look around at each other. They wouldn't find many considered wise by human standards. They wouldn't... None of them strong by human standards. None of them of nobility. And why? Because God chooses the foolish things of the world. God chooses the weak things of the world. God chooses the insignificant things of the world. The despised things. The things that are nothing. 
Jesus himself, the Old Testament prophecy says that he had no majesty, that we should look at him, no beauty, that we should desire him, which is why it's ridiculous whenever they portray Christ in these movies and he looks like the most handsome man ever from California with blue eyes. I mean, it's ridiculous. The world wants wisdom and beauty and strength and significance. And God says, I choose the opposite to shame the wise, the strong, the loved people of the world by the world. I remember hearing the testimony of uh, Stephen Baldwin. This is the actor, the, the brother of Alec Baldwin. And it was uh, uh, his housemaid that exhibited her Christian faith to uh, him and his wife. She was a Brazilian housemaid, not in the category of wise by worldly standards, not strong by worldly standards, not in the category of significant. And yet God used her to bring someone the world said was successful and attractive and significant to himself to show him that what mattered was what God thought and not what man thought. So we have hope because of this surprising sovereignty of God. Third, the, the fallout of favorites. Just This is a short point. Verses 27 and 28. Can we just pay attention to the fact that this is a bad idea? This is a bad idea. The boys have grown up. Esau hunts. Jacob stays at home. Isaac loved Esau for his food and his hunting. Rebekah loved Jacob. Uh, this, this is not a good model of parenting. In fact, this is actually going to be repeated by, with Jacob in chapter 37, showing of favoritism. This only breeds contempt and pain down the road. And it seems the text is just trying to show us some of these basic lessons plainly. It's just a very basic lesson. We're not looking for a Christological significance here. It just seems very simple. Kalula Airlines is a... Um, a South African airline, and they often use humor during their sort of safety demonstrations just to get people to pay attention. You've been on, I know Delta's done some parody stuff in their videos just to kind of keep people engaged. Uh, but Kalula Airlines, at, at one point they would have, uh, the flight attendant would say, if there's a loss of cabin pressure, oxy oxygen mass will drop down. And if you're an adult traveling with children, make sure that you secure your own mask first and if you're traveling with multiple children, choose your favorite child and put the mask on them and then down the line. Well, that certainly would have been the case with Isaac and Rebecca. Thank goodness there's only two of them and two parents. Even though Isaac chooses who receives the blessing, it's his choice to make. It will be God who will overrule his own desire through his sovereign purposes. Even though that's what his desire is, what his desire is, God overrules 
through his sovereign purposes. Okay, our fourth point. Birthright despised. Birthright despised. Verses 29 through 34. One day Esau comes in from the fields and he is exhausted. That word, exhausted, he's famished, he's faint. He wants this red stew that Jacob has made. He says, let me have that red stuff, the red stuff. Literally, that's what he says. It almost doesn't make sense, which is the word Adam in Hebrew. And this is the explanation that's given to the naming of his people, the Edomites, which to me seems like a reminder of what was about to be forfeited because of a choice. Jacob can tell that Esau is desperate for food. How desperate, we, we really wonder. Is he about to die, as he says, or is he just being hyperbolic since he just gets up and walks away after he eats the meal? It's not the actions of a man who's about to die. So Jacob seizes this opportunity, being true to his name, heel clutcher, supplanter, deceiver. He is cunning in his efforts to gain what would have gone to his brother. And what was it that he desired? The birthright. The birthright belonged to the firstborn son. It it, it typically means that you inherit a double portion of the inheritance and you take over family leadership when your father dies. So provision, inheritance, position, leadership. The blessing in chapter 27 is distinct from the birthright which is what they are fighting over. But the birthright was the normal pathway to the blessing. Now, some commentaries say that Jacob took advantage of his brother's situation. And that is true. But there's more going on here than just a doofus who's being duped by his conniving little brother. Uh, Again, it, it doesn't appear that Esau is actually dying here. He's just hungry. And we get a clear answer at the end of the chapter when it says Esau despised his birthright. Now it says thus after he sells it to Jacob, but the implication is that he didn't care about it. He he even says, what use of this is to me? Then when he sells it, then he despises it. Okay, what does this mean? Esau was happy to just live and hunt and eat. He has no concern for covenant matters. He, has, he cares nothing about the divine promises. He cares nothing about the privileges that God gives. In essence, he cares nothing for God. The book of Hebrews explains Esau to us and holds him responsible. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. In chapter 12 of Hebrews, the writer is telling us, telling his audience that, that, that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith, that, that, that there's a cloud of witnesses that are cheering those of us on, those who have gone before, if you remember from chapter 11, the sort of hall of faith. And so the message is, run with endurance, be strong in the Lord, your effort is not in vain. Then it says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He held the promises of God in contempt. He's a rough man who does not care for God or man. He thinks only of himself. He is unrepentant. And as we will see in later weeks, he only wants what he can get from it. He wants the spoils. But that's not why God chose Jacob. Jacob too seems to only think of himself. God chose Jacob because God chose Jacob. That is God's sovereign will. Then when Esau acts like Esau, despising his birthright, that was Esau's choice. And when Jacob is broken eight chapters later, that is because God breaks Jacob and brings him to himself. What we have here is the outworking of sovereign election. And a reminder to those who are called of the love and the care of the Lord that is set upon us. But it's also a warning, a reminder not to have the attitude of Esau. Because you can get election caught up in your head and just think that I don't, have, I don't do anything. I just, I'm just going to... Walk through this. Uh, it's, it's set in stone, and so who cares? That's what the warning is for, is that we not have an attitude like that. Th that, that we not take it lightly, beloved. The gospel love that has been given to us for Jacob and Esau, they had the good news of the, the blessing and God's sovereign choosing of their family and working through their grandfather and now their father, and one of them rejects this, and the other is chosen. Those who are in Christ are those who were sovereignly chosen. Those who are in Adam are those who despise it all. The warning is not to have a casual attitude towards God's gifts. That's why we gather here together to be reminded of this truth to enjoy the gifts that he's given us of, of even just coming together and having fellowship and praising him and rejoicing and, and being reminded of the good news of the gospel. 
They are looking at the promises of God and trusting. We look at what God has accomplished for us and trusting that the line from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob finds its fulfillment in Christ. That God chose these men and their families for his purposes because not because they were shiny, happy people, but because God chooses to work his purposes out. And even despite the struggles in life that we face and despite the conflicts that come up in our life, God uses even those for his purposes according to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. What you intended for evil, God meant it for good. If you are in Christ, then no matter the obstacle, no matter the opposition, God is using these for your good and for his glory. And that we can rest in with confidence and assurance. But we also need to heed the warning. Are we heeding the warning? Or are we having an attitude of Esau? And messages like this are here for us to have confidence and to be reminded and to be warned. Let us pray. Father, as Paul was saying earlier about exhibiting faith and seeing problems and trials and situations that come our way, that faith is in you and who you are and the promises that you, are, you have made that you will see them through. And so our hope is not blind. It is built on confidence on what you have done in the past, trusting that you will work those out despite the difficulties that ultimately you, Lord, are working for our ultimate good, even if it doesn't look good in the moment, and for your own glory. So, Father, help us to rest in that confidence of who you are and what you are accomplishing. At the same time, Lord, let us not be people who despise your good promises, who despise your good gospel, but be people who rejoice in these things. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.